Welcome to Maleficence, a no BS true crime podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie. And I'm Jess. And today we are talking about the case of Angela Simoda. So Angela was born September 1964 in Almeida, California, as Angela Angie Marie Simoda. Her friends and family called her Angie. So we'll call her that for a lot of this episode. She grew up in Armadillo, Texas, and then she attended an all-girls school called Hockaday in Dallas, Texas. After graduation, she went on to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, where she was a double major in computer science and electrical engineering. Her friends said she was brilliant and beyond her time. She was a member of the Zeta Tau Alpha sorority. Back then, it was not as common that young women would go into computer science and engineering, but Angie was following her dream and making her way. She was incredibly friendly, reliable, smart, and often studied late into the night. Her friends also said she had the most cheerful, brightest, and kindest smile. And when you see photos of her, you will absolutely agree. She was gorgeous, well-liked. Her friends told Dateline that she would get, like, notes on her car, flowers, little things from like different admirers. So uh, she was definitely loved. She recently got her own condo near campus after moving out of her dorm that she shared with her friend Sheila. Her and Sheila met on the first day of college just two years earlier. Sheila said the first semester they didn't get along very well because Sheila didn't like Angie's boyfriend Lance that much. But once they broke up, Sheila and Angie became super close. They both grew up without fathers in their life. So they sort of bonded over that, like, experience and grief. They shared a room for the first couple years. And when Angie got her own place and moved out, they still remained the best of friends. And Sheila's important in the story. So So flash forward a bit to the night of October 12th, 1984. Angie and two of her friends, Russell Buchanan, who was actually a new friend to Angie, and Anita Kadala. Sheila was away with at her mother's house for the night, so she didn't end up going with the trio. But the three of them all went to the state fair in Texas. After the fair, they went to the Rio Room Dance Club and a few other bars. Just kind of a fun night out on the town. Her friend said she was talking to everyone as if she knew them all like going table to table and chatting with people. Very personable. She she was was very like extroverted. It's just talk to anyone and everyone as if they were already best friends. Oh, absolutely. She was really friendly and likable and they had a great time. Afterward, she drove her two friends home sometime after one. And then she went ahead and made a quick visit to her boyfriend, Ben McCall, who lived pretty close to her house, like within a couple miles, just to like say goodnight and see him before she herself went to bed. And then she returned to her apartment on Amsbury Drive. So at 1.45 a.m., Angie reached back out to Ben, her boyfriend. When he answered the phone, she told him kind of like in a panic that there was a man who asked to use her phone in her bathroom and that she had let him inside her apartment. Just a stranger. Yeah. Just a so, man. Okay. Yeah. It was a whole different time back then. I think she was friendly, trusting, you know. So Ben only spoke to Angie for a few minutes. Angie said she would have to call him back and the line abruptly hung up. 
Ben did not get the name or information of the man that she led into her home. A little on edge, Ben waited for a call back, knowing that Angie sounded worried, but that call never came. So luckily, Ben took action right away. He tried calling her, but she didn't answer. He got worried and decided to just drive to her house, which like good for him. He just went straight over there. He knocked on the door and got no answer from Angie or anyone else. He tried the door as well, but it was in fact locked. Ben immediately called for help. Now, keep in mind, obviously, this was way before everybody had smartphones in their pockets, so he couldn't just call or text her. But Ben did have an early model mobile phone that his work provided him. So he was able to call the police like he didn't have to like run to a neighbor or anything like that. Shortly after 2.15 a.m., the police arrived on the scene. They did not get an answer. So they went ahead and kicked the door down, which good for them for also taking action so quickly. We don't hear about that a lot. Like they didn't make her wait 24 hours, you know? Yeah, because normally they're like, oh, she's an adult. You know, she probably just fell asleep after drinking tonight. Like, you know. There's nothing suspicious. Yeah, like not answering the door is not a cause to kick it down. But I think with the fact that Ben knew someone was in the home, that they took it a little more seriously. That's good. So once inside the house, they found Angie naked, bloody, and stabbed laying on her bed. It did look as though she may have been raped as well. It was a very gruesome scene. So during the small window of time, less than an hour between that 1.45 a.m. call to Ben and the police getting there at 2.15, someone had brutally taken her life. And so now they needed to find out who was that person and why. That's so creepy because that's actually close. That's like 30 minutes between Mm -hmm. that phone call and him being there and the police kicking down the door. That gives me full body chills because the person who did this had to have just like just escaped the apartment. Yeah. And like murdered her, heard the cops probably, and just escaped the apartment. Like so fast. Yeah. Very, very frightening. And once the police received the autopsy report, it was confirmed that she had in fact been raped. She was stabbed a total of 18 times. 10 of those were to her lungs and her heart. And her cause of death was due to one of those stabs to her chest that actually directly hit her heart. A medical professional also found semen in Angie's body. The semen proved to be from a non-secretor, which I don't know if you know what that is, so I did look it up. The term secretor refers to individuals who secrete blood group antigens or like indicators of blood type in their bodily fluids, such as saliva, semen, sweat, tears, etc., Non-secretors are those individuals who do not secrete their blood group antigens in their bodily fluid. That's according to the National Institute of Health's website. In most populations, nearly 80% of people are secretors. So that's leaving only 20% being non-secretors. That does help narrow down the suspect pool a lot. Yeah, I've never actually even heard that term. Yeah, I hadn't either. That's why I had to look it up and kind of find out what exactly that meant. So you'll learn something new every day. Police immediately wanted to look into the men in Angie's life. The first one being, of course, her current boyfriend, Ben McCall. He stated that he didn't go out with the others that night because he had to be up early the next morning for his construction job. He was a construction supervisor. 
He was also one of the last people to see Angie. He was the one who alerted police, the first one to show up at her apartment building. So it does make sense that they would check in on him first. At first, police felt like Ben wasn't acting how they thought he should. They said when he called, he didn't sound super panicked when they went in to Angie's house and they found her. Like, he didn't ever ask how she was. And that was kind of, like, weird to them. But I do think everybody grieves a little differently. So. Yeah, I don't think you can ever. And that's the hard thing, right? Like, as people from the outside, we want to feel as if we can judge. Like, I would behave this way. But I think it's proven time and time again through all these cases that people just respond differently. You can't ever judge a book by that. Yeah. And spoiler alert, it wasn't him. So he was just grieving. You know what I mean? Like he was probably in shock. It was a lot happening all at one time because they did take a DNA sample from Ben and were able to clear him basically right away because it was concluded he was a secretor. So it wasn't him. I think he just probably didn't know how exactly to react. So police also looked at an ex-boyfriend, Lance, who was reportedly obsessed with Angie. It was also reported by friends that Angie was scared of Lance. This is all alleged. It didn't come from her mouth. But this is what some of her friends had said was that he had also at one point pulled out a knife on her before and shredded some of her clothing with it, like during some sort of like uh, fight. So he was immediately someone police wanted to look at as well. But he, too, was quickly ruled out due to being a secretor. Police then looked at her friend Russell Buchanan. He was with her that night at the fair and the club. Russell was a 23-year-old architect who did live close to Angie's place, like within walking distance, and was also one of the last people to have seen her alive. She dropped him off before going to Ben's and then her house. When they tested his DNA, it was shown that he was a non-secretor. They had no evidence to actually place him at the scene, but this made police very suspicious and landed him on the suspect list. His alibi was that he was at home in bed, and that would be hard to confirm with no witnesses. He did take a polygraph test, and it was reported that he did pass, so there wasn't much left that police could do with him until they had more evidence, some sort of physical evidence. Sheila, Angela's best friend, got the call from a mutual friend, Barbara, that something had happened to Angie. She said in an article that she wrote, quote, I remember screaming because my mother came in, and when I got off the phone through my tears, I told her what had happened, quote. Oh, so sad. Yeah. She ended up going to the police station and speaking with detectives during that interview. They showed her photos of Angie, which I feel is so inappropriate. Why? Like, I don't understand why that would even be necessary. I don't either. But she mentioned that. And the more I thought about it, the more I just thought, like, how traumatic She said she still remembers how horrible it was to see the photos with blood everywhere and her lying with her eyes open. They did tell her that they believed that it could have been Russell Buchanan. He was a bit older than them and was about a year out of college at Texas A&M University and already an architect, as I stated. They wanted to know if she thought Russell could possibly be like romantically interested in Angie. He was a newer friend, so they were like maybe... He fixated on her or had some sort of, you know, romantic interest in her. And then maybe he just snapped. That was kind of their theory. 
So police wanted Sheila to meet with Russell and see if she could connect with him and get some information. She continued to have contact with Russell with encouragement from the police. And at one point, she even let them know like he made her feel uncomfortable, which I just thought was something important to note. But they wanted to see if he would change his story or tell her anything different than what she than what he had said to police. Like try to catch him in a lie or something. Yeah. Or like a changing story, literally anything. Yeah. So one night she asked him to dinner. Russell picked her up and they went to a restaurant called August Moon. She was terrified because she may actually be at dinner with a murderer and rapist. But Sheila's the kind of friend that would do anything for Angie. But Russell, he didn't change his story. He told her the same thing he told police. He got dropped off at home after the night out at the fair and club, and he didn't see Angie again. But it's kind of because it's kind of like the police tunnel visioned on him, right? Because, I mean, he's a non-secreter, which is 20%, you said, of the population, correct? Mm -hmm. But that's it. There's like no physical evidence, no motive, no anything. Yeah. They just kind of were like, okay, like that's the first non-secreter. Like, that's close to her. Like, you know, they just really followed that as long as they could, honestly. Aside from the semen that they found, did did they find any other, like, physical evidence in the home? Mm, It's not reported a lot. It was mostly DNA. Like, I'm sure there may have been fingerprints and stuff, but I didn't see anything specifically stating that. Because they were going to use the DNA to, like, nail the person. Yeah. DNA wasn't what it is now. So they got this information about the non-secretor, but they couldn't just at that point compare his DNA and be like, yeah, that's him for sure. You know, or that's not him for sure. Yeah. Um, Police did continue to bring Russell in for interviews off and on after that for about six months, but they were never able to arrest him. Sheila was so traumatized by the event and not knowing who she could trust. She never went back to college. Like, is it Russell? Is it a stranger? Did we know the person? She had no idea. So she did not return to college. And she did call and check in on the case often, but there was no movement at that point had gone cold. Flash forward to 2004. Angie now lives in Tennessee. She was married with two children of her own. Sheila wrote in an article that she was doing some work and she looked to her right and saw Angie like clear as day, just like an apparition of her. She says she knows it sounds a little wild, but like she just saw her. She had a feeling she was there and she took this as a sign that Angie didn't like speak to her or move, but she knew that this was a sign that she had to get detectives back on the case. She knew that DNA had come a long way since the murder happened in the 80s and that they preserved DNA from Angie's crime scene and that this would be what could solve the case. She called that night to the Dallas Police Department and left a message. She knew the detective very well. She called him probably 700 times, she said, and he was even at her wedding. So she knew him, but he never called her back. Sheila wasn't going to let that stop her. She loved Angie and she knew that the case was solvable. Wow. One day she was complaining to a security guard who worked in her gated community. She was frustrated about being blown off by the detectives and the fact that no one other person over that 20 year period had called detectives about Angie's case. She was the only one like bugging them and keeping it alive. And the security guard said to her, like, you'd make a great private investigator. And that night, she didn't even hesitate. She told her husband, and she said, I'm going to be a private investigator, and she did. 
in Tennessee, you have to be sponsored by a company. And so she was actually sponsored by those security guards, which I think is really sweet. Like they just had so much faith in her. And I think that's amazing. After she completed all the requirements, she thought maybe the police would take her more seriously and work with her. But unfortunately, they did not care that she was a private investigator. That's so unfortunate, too, because how many, I mean, like you said, she was the only one, how many years later, 20 years later, that was trying to keep the case alive. Huge kudos to her. Yeah. And I think the further you get from it, too, the more other cases pile up for detectives. And it's really hard to get them to be like, hey, like, pay back it pay attention back to this case. Like it's important and it's solvable. Yeah. So in the two years of her reaching out, but they were finally tired of her calls. So they did finally reopen the case in 2006. They assigned a female detective named Linda Crum that did reach out to Sheila. Originally, Sheila had been previously told that the evidence from the rape kit had been lost in a flood. But when she spoke to the female detective, Linda, she found out that that was not the case and that they did still have the evidence. The detective had Angie's fingernails and also some semen, which both contained that DNA. Sheila was convinced that this is what would get Russell Buchanan. She'd still thought what the police had told her and had been living for 20 years thinking it was him. And he had been living for 20 plus years as a successful architect while Angie's life was cut short. Sheila was convinced that she had that he had been getting away with murder, but now they sent off the DNA and it would take two years to get answers, but they would in fact get answers in the eighties. There is not much they could do with the DNA, but now it was the key to closing and solving the case. One day in 2008, Sheila gets a call and the detective said, quote, we got him. What was surprising to her most that day is that they didn't say Russell all this time. She had thought it was Russell and that he had gotten away with it. And police had told her they thought it was him also. So she was shocked to find out that it definitely wasn't. The man that's DNA matched the sample taken from Angie was named Donald Bess Jr. Donald was born on September 1st, 1980. 48 in Arkansas. At the time of the murder, he was about 36 years old. He was also a very large man. I only think that's noteworthy because of how awful the crime was. I think it's important to note that he definitely had body mass over her. Like he could overpower her. Absolutely. He had been previously convicted in 1978 for aggravated sexual assault and aggravated kidnapping and was sentenced to 25 years, but was then paroled in 1984. So he was, in fact, out by the time Angie was murdered. He had only been out for seven months. It's so crazy. It's so unfortunate. Like, how often do we hear that, too? Right? Like, someone who is put away for violent crimes, mm-hmm. violent crimes, and gets out and reoffends, And they get out so quickly. Like you said, he was sentenced, what, 25 years and got out? Yeah. After a few? Like, yeah, I mean, between the 1978 conviction and 1984, that's what, like, six years? Gosh. He had been sentenced to 25 for aggravated kidnapping and sexual assault. Was he anywhere on, even on the suspect list, a radar? Like, did they... No. connect him at all before this no not at all which is surprising but it didn't it said basically the dna is what tipped them off that 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 was their guy wild 
By the time the match was found in Angie Simoto's case, he was already in jail again, serving another life sentence for another unrelated sexual assault case. So that man was a real monster. There was also various other women that came forward to report that he had raped or assaulted them too. And his ex-wife stated that he was also abusive to her during their marriage, which only lasted a few years. So he had a history. In 2010, Donald Bess, who was now 62 years old, was tried and convicted of the rape and murder of Angela Samoda. During the trial, the lead prosecutor, Pat Curlin, told jurors that he wants to believe that Samoda died quickly, but lead investigators believe that the attacker was in the apartment when Ben first arrived and knocked at the door. So just like you had kind of mentioned earlier, it wasn't a lot of time. He had to have been there at some point before they officially broke in. Investigators believe that she may have been trying to like get up or call for help. And that's what led Bess to stabbing her so many times in the chest and killing her because he hadn't killed allegedly up until this point. And that's what I was wondering, too, because we normally know that for someone to be stabbed, that many times that it's usually someone who is connected to the person, right? Like a crime of passion or something. Cause that's excessive Mm -hmm. eight, like 18 times. So was it a fear of, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be caught and she's going to, yeah, you know, tell on me. I read some stuff that was kind of like, yeah, like he wanted to make, like she needed to shut up and she needed to shut up quick. I don't mean that to sound like crude, but like, that's kind of like what they were saying. His thought, like his mentality. Yeah. Yeah. He And he actually never fessed up to committing the crime or even meeting her. Like, he didn't, he wouldn't even, like, use the scapegoat excuse of, like, oh, we just had sex. That's why my DNA is there. Like, he just denied completely that he even knew her or was ever there or had anything to do with it. And the defense did try to say that the DNA was just proof of sex. But, like I said, he never fessed up to either of those things, which would have been a lie anyway. So, it was pretty obvious what had happened. The defense literally tried to blame anyone else. They reminded everybody it could be Ben, it could be Lance. What about Russell? Which, embarrassing. They never did find the actual murder weapon. But DNA doesn't lie, and neither does his past offenses. Like, the easiest answer is usually the one that's true. You can't, I don't know how you can try to defend that your DNA is inside of a murder victim. Yeah. (laughs) And try to say it's not you. Yeah, exactly. The crazy thing, too, is like Ben was right there, possibly on the other side of the door when he took her life. Mm -hmm. And now he has to know that. Like, I hope that he didn't have to find that out. Like, I hope they didn't say that in front of him, because I feel like there's probably some guilt that comes with that, even though there was no way for him to possibly know what was going on. He did everything right. He took action immediately. He called the police immediately. Like, you know, he did what he could do. Absolutely. But it says that a lot that they, in the sources, they think he was there when Ben showed up, when the police showed up. Like, and so I just think that's really unfortunate. So on June 8th, 2010, a jury found Donald Bess Jr. guilty due to the DNA evidence. The, they only deliberated for less than an hour and he was given the death penalty. He did file an appeal in March 2013, but that was, of course, rejected. He did file a few more appeals after that, but they were all rejected and they upheld the findings of the Dallas County Trial Court. October 8th, 2022, 
Donald Best did die in prison from a heart attack while awaiting the execution. Now Russell can finally live without the suspicion of murder hanging over his head, which had to have been so awful because people genuinely thought it was him, even the police. He did go on to become a celebrated architect, though. He designs, quote, boxy contemporary homes and apartment buildings, quote. He is well known in the Dallas, Texas area and has even appeared in Architectural Digest. He designs furniture and is an artist as well. Russell had no idea that Sheila had, like, wholeheartedly believed that it could have possibly been him. Like, he just had no idea that that was the case. He said that it he didn't know that it was, like, hanging over his head necessarily, which I think is kind of a gift considering it wasn't him and it didn't, like, ruin his life for so many years. Yeah, because we hear that all the time too, right? Someone gets wrongly accused and it destroys their reputation yeah no jobs no yeah absolutely and sheila said she does feel so guilty for wanting to put him in prison for the crime but neither of them hold it against one another they are happy to finally have answers and even though it doesn't bring angie back they're happy they did everything that they could the police also apologized to russell which is incredible because that does not happen often Angie is remembered by her friends and family fondly. When they think about her, they remember her ambition, her smile, her friendliness, and how smart she truly was. Yeah, I think that the, this is just me, but I think that the police should have probably apologized to Sheila as well for constantly trying to keep them involved in the case and them not, you know, I mean, finally, at least they reopened the case, but I don't know, just huge, huge kudos to her and what an amazing woman to like keep this case alive to finally find justice yeah. for her friend and to fight to fight for her, even when they weren't wanting to give her information or yeah help or anything. And it's yeah. really lucky or it's really good that they opened that cold case unit and started putting in the work. I know a lot of cases have been solved that way, and I'm really grateful this one was one of them. You can find sources for this episode in the show notes. To view photos about the case, check out our Instagram at Maleficence Podcast. Thank you for listening to Maleficence. If you like the show, make sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and share with your friends. Then follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Maleficence Podcast. We'll see you next Friday with a brand new episode.